Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I actually did a user group presentation today. Wow, look at you. I did notice that on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. I did notice that your profile photo is a hella out of date, dude. Well, it depends on what system you're on. Because <laughs> I was like the third person on the Twitters, so that picture, however old Twitter is, that's how old that picture is. <laughs> but if you are on uh, Add in 365 intranet, that picture was one they just took of me this last uh, fall. So There we go. But yeah, so I actually put on my uniform. I got my dust out my MVP polo and put that on. And I'm wearing my <laughs> dev kitchen hoodie and talked away. And uh, it was something. It's nice to get out there and speak for sure. Yes. And so uh, we'll put a, sh a link in the show notes to the recording. It was introduction to Microsoft Graph dash access tokens. Oof. Because I don't want to steal your thunder about how to use the graph <laughs> and all. But sometimes you need to get a token, right? <laughs> just a minor fact. <laughs> yeah. And so we talked about that and a couple. So you just scared everyone, basically. Yeah. But I'm telling folks noticing now, there's some tidbits in there about how to log what's happening under the cover so that when token acquisition fails, you can troubleshoot. So the more, yeah, it's easier to find out why it failed. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but that, yeah. So how has your week been? Uh, it's good. I mean, obviously it's, you know, we're recording this on the 17th. This is the last working Thursday for me before I take two weeks off. So we have been in planning mode for the last few weeks of working out what we're going to be doing for the next six months. And so we had our big presentation yesterday to our corporate vice president, Perry, and uh, went really well across the whole of Unis Org. So that was, yeah, it's good. So we're slowing down a little bit now. I'm wrapping up a few things and getting time to speak to partners that have been free, which has been great just to hear like what things they're releasing in their products soon in the graph. So it's exciting to see there are some really cool products coming through um, in the ecosystem, which is exciting. So when teams have to do their planning, is there an item on their list that says, Talk with Jeremy and Paul on the podcast about what they're building. Because <laughs> if there isn't, you should put it there. <laughs> Pretty much, I just make notes. Oh, that'll be a good one in a few months, and that'll be a good one in June. Yeah, yeah that's basically how it goes. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, you mentioned that I, I didn't put a link in here this week. So when, when we're back from the holidays, everyone, I have a great link that a couple of folks posted. One is Jeffrey Richter on Azure SDKs, and like Imo Landworth posted about the .NET Core project the, their thoughts going forward like for the next six months it's fascinating stuff to read so look for that uh, after the holidays that's cool this week's been big i mean obviously this is probably not going to go out to the 4th of january so this is kind of a tardy happy holidays um thing but the graph explorer has uh, autocomplete enabled now which is something that is super useful like the samples on the left hand side are great because it allows you to kind of click and see get my profile, get my mail, get my files, um, get my tasks, so forth. But if you want to go into the um, address bar within Graph Explorer, now if you start doing like question mark, dollar filter, it'll start helping you to type those things out, which is an easy way of building out what's uh, the query uh, in an easy way, which is nice. So Didn't it have this before or something like it? It did. In the very, very early days, I think it was like V1 of Graph Explorer had it. And then when we evolved to 
Angular, it lost it. And then when we evolved to React, which is the one that's been out for a year now, and um, we've added that back in in a more scale, scaled way. Excellent. Uh, which has driven off metadata. The original one was hard-coded. Um, so this one will scale as more metadata comes on the surface layer of the graph. So congrats to Betty and Charles and Devere and the rest of the team that are involved in Graph Explorer there, which is cool. Another favorite team of mine working on DevX is uh, the to the toolkit. You you're using the toolkit, right? In your stuff? No comment. No. Yes. He's, he's. I don't do UI, so we might be. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you are from talking to Wes, but they announced V2 of the toolkit. So um, Elise and Nicola and Beth and Shane and, and the folks have all been working really hard, Nicholas as well, um, as well as um, getting some external contributions now, some from dev advocates like Waldeck Mastercars um, and others uh, that are contributing there, which is great. So if you want some cycles on some ocean source projects, there are still some bounty tasks you can go pick up there and contribute back. But they, they I think the, the biggest one I noticed from the V2 is the evolution of the people cards that they're doing there and how easy they're making that. So definitely go check that out. If you're doing anything UI where you're rendering stuff from the graph, you know, there's a lot of toolkit components we have there that make that, you know, easy to have a people card on the page or a calendar on the page or an interactive to-do list on the page. So Definitely go check that one out. The last time I looked at the docs, I noticed that the page that explains how to use it inside React was much better than it was initially. So thanks for yeah. helping us newbies how to get bootstrapped and off we go. So great to see. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, we got lots of feedback from Build at the beginning of the year where we built out that moderator app. And um, yeah, Nicola and the team have been really busy making sure the docs are as streamlined as possible for not just web components as the baseline, which is what the technology is, but also, you know, streamlining that for React and various other platforms as well, which is cool. What did you find out there? So a uh, somewhat big news item is Bot Framework Composer got an update. Uh, we talked about the Bot Framework back, uh, I don't know, 15 episodes ago, so probably six months or so ago with Gary and Dwayne, and they have a new update. Bot Framework Composer is a graphical design tool to let you diagram and then generate conversations using Bot Framework. Think of SharePoint designer or power automate designer for conversations, right? And That's you can click cool. a button and generate a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And so they added multilingual stuff, which is on my to-do list for 2021. I told the boss we're multilingual now. We have English and American, but it didn't really <laughs> cover exactly what he meant. But so, um, so yeah. I don't know if Wes speaks English half the time either. It's quite like, <laughs> it's like um, cock Cockney. Yeah, well, this it, it's text mode, so there's extra U's and Z's in there. But anyways, <laughs> um, so it's, uh, that's on my list to go review this uh, update, uh, a somewhat lengthy blog post from Gary, as is usual. For him, he's real comprehensive, so great to see them moving along with Bot Framework Composer 1.3. I, I'm not a big fan of bots this week. I, um, I've been doing some work with my credit card companies to get statements for um, a refi on a mortgage. And you call these numbers and like, say this if you want this option i'll say that if you want that option and i try and do the world's most perfect queen english accent <laughs> and it's still like would you like me to repeat these options <laughs> and so it's working out the cheat of which button on your phone will just break the cycle and just put you in charge with a human being and uh, for, for most most of them it's zero I found will just bypass all of the automated bots and take you to a human that will be able to help or may not in some cases. That's the way of the future, no doubt. Yeah. 
Uh, speaking of way in the future, the, the other one is an interesting little blog or entry in the tech community that I think has got big ramifications. It's titled Stake Current with In-Demand Skills Through Free Certification Renewals. And let me just summarize this. Because things move so fast and have moved even faster in 2020 due to the pandemic, the certification will expire in a year. However, you can take a renewal assessment mm. within six months of expiration, which in the, according to the headline is currently free. So the idea, of course, is that you, you do the work to get certified and then uh, you have to do a little catch up in the last year of what's changed using this renewal assessment instead of having to do a whole new cert all over again. So Interesting. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I'm not big into the cert world, so I don't know the impact, but it, off the top of my head, it sounds like this could be somewhat significant for folks. And, and obviously, if I don't have to pay to, re to renew, uh, that would be helpful as well. Yeah, I, I like the aspect of renewing so that, you know, you don't just take it once and you've had it for five. Like, I've still got MCTS certificates <laughs> from SharePoint development when it was .NET Framework stuff. You know, I am a SharePoint certified professional developer. <laughs> there you go. For the 2007 platform. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I do like the aspect of that, but I can see some people that do lots and lots of certs. This could be quite a chore every year in doing all the renewals. And also, we haven't been asked to build yearly uh, upgrade courses yet, so we're interested to see how we do that with the graph. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is in this blog post, they mentioned that Microsoft Azure grew by more than 1,000 new capabilities in a year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, that's pretty insane, isn't it? Yeah, I think for, for graphs specifically, like the certification, the fundamentals, once you've learned how to get a token <laughs> and uh, make your first few calls and learn some of the workloads, I think, you know, short of us releasing a V2, which is not planned right now, that, that won't, your foundationally it won't change. Whereas with Azure, it's like whole new products sets and, you know, retirements of product sets that people have to keep up to date with. So I, I can get that learn is more focused on the Azure world than our M365 ecosystem for that, for sure. And then talking of the M365 ecosystem and SharePoint, um, we haven't mentioned Chris O'Brien in a while on this podcast, but he's written one on SharePoint Syntax and Cortex. Yeah, and, and Chris, this is a, a typical Chris O'Brien post in that he's gone through step-by-step step how to do things. And, he's, and Syntax is a big beast, right? And so what he's focusing on in this blog post is training a classifier to recognize documents and extract metadata out of them. So thanks to Chris for going through all that work and doing that. It looks great. Well, there's a little snugget, 10 edges on his images, screenshots. And yeah, this is the usual level of detail that you'd expect from a Chris post, which is awesome. And I saw on his LinkedIn, he was, he's been looking at other worlds. He's digging into other non M365 platforms. And it was kind of interesting to see him say, like, it reminds me of the days of when he first learned SharePoint, you know, when you pull the covers off a brand new platform, I think it was ServiceNow and just the learning curve is so immense on a platform that big. I think the last time I did that was when I dug into Salesforce and just seeing how overwhelming of a platform that is to kind of, you know, where do you start? So it'd be interesting to see where he starts blog posts on that too. Yeah. So thanks to Chris for doing that. And then uh, the episode this week to be uh, recorded, which is a, a first for us, but you did some great work <laughs> digging up a guest. Why don't you give us a preview of what we're going to hear? Yeah. So Nick Kramer is in a Teams team. We'll be chatting about the resource-specific consent in Teams, which um, has been a huge ask for us in the partner ecosystem team. So um, please give it a listen. And um, again, 
2021. We are looking for some new suggestions on content. Uh, if you've got something you'd like to share, uh, we'd love to hear from you and get you on the show. So please reach out to Paul and I on Twitter and um, we'll happily engage. And uh, thanks again, Paul. Uh, we'll see you next week. Or next year. Or next year. See ya. <laughs> Hey, thanks for joining us, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, how are things working from home these days? I guess being in the Teams team, you're well in indoctrinated into work from home Teams experience. Yeah, we get to dog food the product all day long. <laughs> do you feel like you're getting more meetings than you would do if you were in the office or about same or less? I'd say slightly more. I mean, I, I have a fair yeah. amount of meetings under any circumstance, so it's, it's hard to say like... Uh, Certainly not like I have double as many because I don't have that many hours in the day. And and you're based in Washington. Is the rest of your team in Washington or is it kind of all over the shop? Most of our team is in Bellevue, Bellevue, Washington. Yeah. Uh, we do have some folks in India. And um, yeah, I, think, I don't think we have anyone outside of Bellevue or India right now in my immediate team. And I know you've been on the show before, but maybe for those who didn't uh, catch the previous episode you're on, can you just, how long have you been at Microsoft? What have you worked on prior to this current project and, and what is your main responsibilities now? Yeah, so I never even gave my full name. So Nick Kramer, I work on Microsoft Teams, driving the graph APIs for Microsoft Teams, which are the REST APIs for accessing team data. And uh, I've been in Teams for a little over three years now, and uh, which makes me one of the uh, the old timers <laughs> in Teams now. <laughs> it's really funny to say that because uh, a lot of the people I, I joined with, uh, a lot of people I joined are, are no longer with Teams, but then a lot of the people are still, and they're still obviously the old timers to me. Uh, <laughs> and then before that, I, I've been with Microsoft for more than 20 years and have worked wow. on uh, a variety of UI technologies, including WinForms and WPF and its its successors, Silverlight, XAML. I drove Win32 user GDI for a while there. So I've run the gamut of UI technologies. That's really cool. Yeah, I always envy people that, I mean, are you from here or did you move here for Microsoft? I moved out here for Microsoft, yeah. Yeah. I always envy people that are able to do that because I'd love to have seen what the experience would be like of being in Microsoft that long and being across a few different engineering groups and how that journey would differ in the different groups across the years. It's definitely changed over the years. Yeah. I imagine with Teams, just the, the sheer pace of that engineering group is probably the most intense you've probably been in, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty interesting. It's there's definitely a go make it happen mentality. <laughs> you, you know, I was looking for your last visit in our in our notes, and I kept scrolling back and scrolling back, and it has been two years since you were last on the show. Is it really? Has it really been? <laughs> yes, October of 2018. And I would imagine that the hot topics that were the Ignite, there was the Ignite 2018 conference we were covering. And so that's what you're, the, the, the delta between then and now is probably so vast. <laughs> we, we'd have a week-long show. But uh, yeah, that, the pace of, of your team has been phenomenal. And I'm glad that this topic has released as an ISV. We've been chomping at the bit for this. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. This is honestly, this is when I started working. The resource-specific consent was one of the ones that I was most excited about, and so I'm glad that we actually succeeded on that eventually. How would you introduce that challenge? Like, obviously, I mean, I guarantee if I listen to that show again, we talked about that back then, but probably as contextual consent, which was like the initial internal names that we were calling it before it got polished as resource-specific consent. But why was this such a big demand feature for teams specifically? 
Yeah, the, the big thing is um, most of the, if you look back before resource-specific consent, most of the team's graph APIs required admin consent. They require, if you rewind the clock a little bit to, say, about a year ago, there's basically two permissions that for almost all the team's APIs. You could have group.read.all or group.readwrite.all. And the, the key thing for both of these is all if you want access to a team, you have to get access to all teams and all parts of the team. Well, who can speak on behalf of all teams and the tenant? Well, the tenant admin can speak on behalf of all teams of the tenant. Pretty much no one else can. And so you end up with a model where every single app you install, you need to find your tenant admin and get them to approve it. And if you're just a regular Joe user, the first time you try to run it, you get this dialogue that says, hey, you're not an admin, go away. And uh, you just hit this brick wall. And so, um, we, you know, that was a fairly frequent problem we ran into is that people would be like, uh, what do I do now? I'm not an admin. I don't even know who my admin is. And if I do manage to find my admin, he's not going to let me get access to all teams. And so, uh, we, we needed to come up with a better model that allowed people to actually consent to these things without having to track down an admin. And, and historically, I mean, I'm assuming you didn't go out of the gate thinking this was the end game of what it would be. But is there any way you could explain why that was the initial state? Is it because of the fact that everything hung off groups as a context? I mean, why, why did we do group read write all? Yeah, yeah. Like, why wasn't it like something lower at the, at the beginning? Was there just a lot of architectural challenges to get there? Well, it was a couple of things. Um, initially, it was literally just the, you know, the fastest thing that could fly out of people's fingers. It was, hey, we got an existing permission covers our use case, our very limited use case, go for it. We did, earlier in the year, we did introduce kind of the, the next most obvious thing, which is instead of group read-write-all, how about like you split the team into various parts, channel read-write-all and team settings read-write-all and this and that, uh, and w- which is a useful thing and we've, we're, we're glad we did it, but it still has that dot all involved. And it's really that dot all that's been the, the hard technical challenge to go solve how do we really, if you look at all of graph, almost everything is based on this idea of the, the consent, the permission is independent of the particular resource. You have file.read for all files. You know, the file.read means all files that you own. You can't say file.read for this file, but not that file. <laughs> yeah, right. You can just say files.read. And sometimes they, they, these permissions come in a flavor that qualifies it. You can say files.read is files I own, and files.all is all the files I have access to, including the ones I don't own. But it's still this very coarse-grained permission model. And that's really the only thing we had in Graph in Azure Active Directory. And so we had to build a more notion there. You know, but I want to interrupt you there. Sorry, Nick, because before, right, other workloads have had their own authorization store, right? SharePoint lets you set groups and mailboxes you can set permissions on, but you guys being a modern app developed after Azure Active Directory is there. You, did, you didn't build anything like that, right? So you're kind of at the mercy of what you provided at first, right? Yeah, exactly. And because this is also deeply integrated and, and uh, goes through graph patterns and through Azure Active Directory patterns, we really were um, held back as is a little too strong, but we were we were subject to the constraints of what Graph and and uh, and Azure Active Directory had available, and we worked with them to build those patterns out and and create a pattern that would work for us, and that we believe will expand to other workloads as well. And so the evolution of that was 
the resource specific consent that you worked with the identity team on. So, I mean, that journey has been quite a long journey, right? Because it's not a straightforward thing to go implement, but ultimately like what is the scenario? How does the experience change for an end user deploying an app now that has resource specific consent rather than the group rewrite all approach? Yeah. So at a conceptual level, what happens is you now grant permissions to a specific team. This app now has read, write access to this team, or this app has the ability to read channels in this team or whatever it is, the specific permission this app asks for on that particular team. So instead of granting permissions to all teams, you're granting that app access to one team. And the user experience is such that it looks like just any other Teams app. You install a Teams app that has a bot and a tab. It has some permissions. There's a little permission section in there. And the resource-specific consent permissions are just new types of bullets in that permissions list that you saw before. This app has the ability to send you messages. This app has the ability to read messages in the channel. This has this app has the ability to, to create channels in this team. You know, It's just another Teams app that happens to have powers that you never would have seen before resource specific consent came along and so there's you're making it much more fine-grained of what the app can do within the context of the resource which in this case is a team correct okay if i'm not deploying it through a team can i still do this at this granular level like through some kind of api or a powershell command or like because i'm guessing it's the the delivery when you activate the app in a team that this is magically enabled is there a way of doing this if i'm a standalone app you to use rsc so rsc in its, its initial version is purely for teams apps it's all about installing a teams app that uses rsc into a particular team and you can do that installation through a variety of mechanisms you can install it through teams client you can also install it through powershell commandlets if you're an admin uh, especially it's useful for admins and uh, honestly, I can't remember whether we ever did the modern portal GUI installation experience for that, but that would be an additional venue that uh, we'd look at in the future. So if I'm getting my app installed into a team, I, there's policies around that you could set up as well. And and I, what I'm wondering, there's multiple parts here, but now this this consent has still has to happen, right? Somebody has to click consent. And I think what you're saying is it doesn't have to be the tenant admin any longer. Is that right? That's correct. But if I run PowerShell to install it into a team, is PowerShell going to prompt for that consent or will the user see it when they first navigate to it? So the PowerShell experience is giving the consent. And the way you actually do that is, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the PowerShell commandlet, but part of it is you pass in the list of permissions you're okay giving this app. And so when you install it, that is the consent and you, you passed in the permissions that you're consenting to. That's pretty cool. Okay. And then if I set up a policy, will it be something similar so that if someone creates a new team, they automatically get the app, will it automatically have the consent then? So there's two questions there. So there's application permission policy in Teams, which is the, the notion that says this user is allowed to run this app. And so those apply to RSC apps as well. If you say this user can't use the Foo app, well, then they can't install the Foo app to their team and give it consent. Uh, there's a second notion of application pinning policy, applications, actually application setup policy, I believe it is. Those are not going to try to think what they actually do outside of RSC context. Uh, there, there's nothing that will automatically install an RS, RSC app in all your teams. You know, someone will have to manually, if you will, someone has to positively acknowledge they're okay with the RSC app running in that particular team. 
And and how does that work in context of a a, a personal app? So I, I'm seeing more and more in our own tenant where in the the left hand rail I can see different things going on in there. Are those personal apps deployed into a team or are they just deployed f- for me as a user? Yeah, so a personal app is deployed for you as a user. Um, so the it's possible for be, to be deployed in multiple places and then for the personal view to kind of aggregate that data that's also stored in the team. Okay. So that's where it gets a little interesting to answer. Yeah. So uh, from a kind of application model perspective, those are considered effectively different things. You installed this app once in the personal scope for that particular person, and then you also installed it in a team. And if behind the scenes, they happen to share data between each other and render in one another, you know, that's that's kind of outside the knowledge of what Teams actually knows is what you're rendering inside that tab. But if you were to do that model where you have a personal view and it's also installed in a team, then yeah, you could do that. You could have your personal view use RSC permissions to read data out of that team that it also has access to. And the users then basically granularly saying, I only want this person to have access to like three teams rather than like all teams. Yeah. Although it would be installed, when you install it for the team, you'd be installing it on behalf of all users in that team. Yeah. So that statement kind of implies that I have to have ownership per rights of a team in order to grant consent, right? Because we keep saying user, but I'm guessing it's not just anybody, right? It's a team owner more or less, right? You're right. Team owners grant access to team data. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's kind of a acknowledging thing of like, how big is a team? Like we have, well, Nick, you're a member of it. The Microsoft Graph team is like 800 channels and like so many engineering groups are in there. Like I, I actually took my hands away from the, uh, yeah. the uh, controls of that. I'm no longer an approver of membership because I was like, nope, this is too big for me to be making decisions on anymore. I don't know any of these people requesting access. Someone else can uh, can wear their run of that. Yeah. Teams come in all sizes. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, there's an understatement right there. <laughs> so is the resource specific consent still the all or nothing approach like we have seen in the past? If uh, Or can uh, the team owner, can they pick if its files are okay, but messages are not, et cetera? Yeah, it's definitely not all or nothing. From, a, from an app developer perspective, you can choose which parts of the team you want access to. Uh, where's my handy dandy list here? So do you want to be able to read the settings in the team? Do you want to be able to read the membership of the team? Do you want access to the uh, messages in the team? Do you want access to the channel kind of metadata? Do you want to be able to uh, access the tabs and the installed apps? So you get all the you get the choice of those different parts. As a team owner, it's much more it's a much more simplified model of either install the app or don't install the app. You know, there's no slider that says, well, I'm gonna give you two out of the three permissions that this app asked for and hope for the best. Like <laughs> I don't know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. No, we just want to yeah, go down so, that so road. The, so it's a similar model that us developers are yeah. used to. We can request whatever we want, but at the end of the day, either everything is granted or nothing is granted. Exactly. And so I in the way you were listing that off, I mean when I think of teams as a user experience, um, you know, there's a files tab with files in it and there's a potential for a planner tab with plans in it. Um, we're not quite there yet with RSC for the files within the team or the tasks within a team, right? And and that's just the nature of this is a journey we're on and we wanted to get them all right before we put other workloads of the of the graph surface into this RSC model. Exactly. Yeah, that we, we want to get there eventually, and uh, we wanted to prove this out for one workload before we extended it to all the workloads. 
The other yeah. nice thing about files in particular is that at least there was one user consentable permission mm -hmm. that actually worked in that space. And so that, that took yeah. a little bit of, that, that gave us a little more leeway to, uh, to experiment with doing this in one workload before we tried to solve world hunger. So technically you would do RSC permissions for the teams aspects of the team and then files.read is just a normal graph consent. Uh, to have access to the files in there, but effectively it would give the app access to the files in that team and other files in their OneDrive and so forth as well. Yeah, you can do it more than one way, but the the most logical way is is exactly what you said: do files dot read and then have access to uh, have a user delegated token that accesses whatever files that you as a user has access to. Well, but now files dot read user delegated implies that the three of us have our own set of files and we would be prompted for consent each time each of us ran the app. But if the app is installed in a team and the team owner says it's okay, does that mean my files are now consented by that app? Well, maybe I should have said files.read.all because that's actually user consentable okay. as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. But it's all it's all in the identity of the app, essentially, is I think because of the fact the team owners are signing it. Yeah. Or the resource is a good way of explaining it. Um, so for a developer, how do I go about setting this up? What do I do? Yeah, so the, the big thing is, um, so go to aka.ms slash teams hyphen RSC. Oof, good one. They'll tell you the uh, all the magic, but I'll, I'll summarize the magic for you. Basically, you're going to have a Teams app, and you're going to put some extra stuff in the Teams app manifest. And those extra stuff is you have to tell us what the Azure Active Directory app ID is. You know, get, Tell us what your app ID is that you're connecting your Teams app with that, uh, that user is going to consent to. Second part is, I believe there's this dummy resource field you have to fill in that's because we share some of the same structures with our single sign-on code and our manifest insists on a resource, a resource identifier that the RSC path doesn't actually use. So that's in there, unfortunately. And then the third part there within the manifest is what permissions do you want? Do you read uh, channels? Do you want to read messages? Do you want to read membership? You know, list out those however many permissions you want. We got our nice on that page. I just pointed you at, we have a nice list of permissions to choose from. So that's what you put in the manifest. And then from there, it basically works like you're used to. You get a permissions token, you get a application permissions token uh, the same way you normally would. You basically just post to uh, microsoftonline.com and get back your nice token. And then you just pass it into an API call the same way you normally would pass in your access token. So does this mean that you have to use the new SSO approach to auth for this to work? Absolutely not. Okay. Well, maybe I should caveat that. <laughs> Here's why I say that. Uh, there, are, there are use cases where you're going to want to do that for security reasons. If you're doing RSC inside a tab, mm -hmm. uh, for most practical scenarios, in order to ensure that you're only giving out information to people who are supposed to be able to access the tab, you probably want to do some kind of single sign-on auth flow anyway. It, it's kind of hard. I'm sure it's possible to imagine a scenario where you've sanitized the data sufficiently before you send out that HTML to the web page. But the thing about tabs is tabs have a URL. You can actually just navigate your web browser to that URL because a tab is really just an iframe. Right. And you can even pop them out in a lot of cases now too, right? So it's even easier to see the address. Exactly. And so if you're a tab author and you're giving out anything you know, derived from team data, you want to make sure that the person you're displaying this tab to actually is part of that team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's where the single sign-on comes in. Once you have an auth token, 
once you know who the user is, you can then do a really quick check to say, are they part of the team? If yes, show them something. If not, don't show them something. So. Yeah, and the team have done it. The other team have done a really good job on the SSO aspect of that. I think um, it's a lot more streamlined than it was. Heck, when we did build in May, um, it was. It's a lot cleaner now to get yeah. up and running. So, I, I don't think that's as much of a tax as it was when we did that uh, build for certain. Yeah, it's come a long way. It's it's much much smoother now than it used to be. And looking on this page that you pointed us to, there's one other thing that caught my eye that I really like, and I just want to say thanks, is I can query teams for what permissions my app has been granted or consented, right? So I can gracefully try to get something, and if it's not allowed, stop and back office, right? So the, is that that something that a team owner can then view as well, or is this API only? I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a UI around this, what's been consented like there is in Azure Active Directory Portal? There's not much UI around what's been consented other than the uh, Teams install experience. You know, you go in, you know, what, what you see in the Teams install is what you're giving it permission to. I've always thought of the API you, you mentioned as primarily a debugging aid, but you're right, it is available for apps to call as well and uh, see what's going on. And then one last one, and this is really uh, from my old SharePoint days, is where you're defining the manifest of permissions. If I have a new version of the app and I add a new permission scope, how does that, is that just part of the upgrade experience of the app in Teams that it just, it will like re-pop up a permission if it sees one that's new? Yeah, pretty much. So the, the way it works is, um, as you said, it's an upgrade experience and it's an upgrade experience that actually existed before we even did RSC. If you were to say, take a app that has only a tab in it and then add a bot to it later in a later version, you go through the same process of, hey, this app is asking for more permissions than it used to ask for. You need to go through an experience that basically looks like reinstalling the app. It shows you that same dialogue that when you when you first installed the app, shows you the list of permissions that the thing's asking for, uh, shows you also the nice little picture of what the app does and why you want this app. And, go through that experience. And do, would these things show up in the Azure AD portal? Like would the application registration show up to an admin as an enterprise application or in the app registrations views with those permission scopes? Well, yes and no. So it, it does, the application shows up in the Azure Active Directory portal. Yeah. The particular permissions it wants, the RSC permissions it's asking for are opaque to the uh, admin center. Okay. But if you call the API, would it render in the API call? Yeah, so there's that API call, uh, Paul, you were alluding to, um, consent records slash group slash ID slash consent records, which will tell you what are the specific permissions this app has been granted for this specific group or team. Uh, okay. You know, so I want to rewind a little bit, right? You said that in the app manifest, I need to put the app ID that I've registered in Azure Active Directory. Yeah. When I'm registering that app, are there is there an overarching permission I need to request in order to make all the team stuff work? Or can I just leave that empty and put everything in the manifest? You, yeah, you leave your app registration empty in terms of, of permissions you're asking for, and you put all that information in the team's app manifest. Cool. Is that a requirement or can I have an app that asks for user.read so I can get a picture of somebody and I put the other stuff? Uh, I mean, I guess, can I have my cake and eat it too? <laughs> you can have your cake and eat it too. You can, uh, you can also, in your app registration, you, you can request, say, files.read.all and also do RSC permissions. Yeah, excellent. 
Excellent. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. All right. Well, I think we've done that one to death, but I'm really excited to see the scenarios. And, you know, quite frankly, um, the amount of times I've talked to an ISV about the graph where the brick wall, as we've called it internally, came up where it's like, we can't sell this to a customer because admin consent is just blocking the conversation. Um, I'm really excited to, and thank you for pushing it through. I know this wasn't an easy one internally. So I really appreciate you um, spearheading this and getting this across the line. So moving on, the other exciting one is the activity feed stuff. And um, it's something that I know has been in the works for a while. Um, can you explain like wh- what was the main motivation around that? Like, it, cause it's quite a big jump in terms of an extensibility point for developers. Yeah, so let's first say what it is. Uh, what we're talking about here is the ability to send an activity feed notification. So the, in the activity bell area of of Microsoft Teams, and I forget what we're calling it this week. Yeah, activity <laughs> is the is the name of that icon. The activity icon it has that list of what's new in Teams, what's what's going on, what do you need to know about, and so we've built an API to allow your app to put custom stuff, custom entries into that activity feed list. And so, if you are an issue tracking app, you can now put in an update that says, "Hey, someone." changed an activity or someone changed a an issue that you care about. Someone assigned you a new issue to go resolve. Someone modified an issue that you filed. And uh, you can now use this as a single place to kind of what's what everything is new that I need to know about today, whether it's a message or not. Yeah. So back in the day, we had to do like a bot message or at message someone to have it show up before, right? And so now you're unlocking us. Oh, this is sweet. Exactly. If, if you don't have an activity feed, what you end up doing is it, either you just punt on the problem and no one knows that a new issue was assigned to them. Or you end up generating these kind of low-value messages. These you send an email, you mm-hmm. send a Teams message in a bot, and, and someplace that gets lost and ignored. If you put in act- a huge channel of those things, you get a whole channel yeah. of these things. If you put them in the activity feed, first they get coalesced. If you if they, you know, the same app sends ten identical ones, the app has a choice of saying, "Hey, actually, no, I just need to tell this person once. I don't need to tell them ten times about the same thing. Let's merge them all together." Oh, that's cool. So that's a nice feature. You also give the user control over, do I actually want to hear this? I can turn it off. I can uh, choose to display it as feed only, or I can also choose to display it feed plus notification in the lower right corner of my screen. So as a user, because it's in the feed, I have that choice. And the other thing that we get by putting this stuff in the feed is when I click on it in the feed, I actually get something useful. I can click on it in the feed and see that issue on the right-hand side of the screen. So if it's an issue tracking app, I don't have to click on it and see a message that says, there's an issue. Wouldn't you like to know what that issue is? Click here to see what the issue is. (laughs) You're in the feed, you see the item. You can do something with it. As a developer, what's the technology I'm using to show that information? Is that a tab? Is that a task module? Is this all the above? What what, what is it? Yeah, so on the right-hand side, you'd put a tab. You'd write a uh, personal tab in most cases, although you can also do a channel tab. Okay. Yeah, and, and just essentially display arbitrary HTML over there. It's like a deep link like that we've had all along, right? A deep link into a tab and off we go. Exactly. Yeah. So where I found this useful personally is uh, Yammer is doing this already with communities that you join internally at Microsoft. And I do find it hard to kind of go to Yammer, go to my Outlook, go to Teams to do things. And um, having those announcements that get posted in those communities I'm joined in Yammer show up 
in my uh, activity bell screen is actually super useful. Um, and I do actually use that filter type too. So, you know, by default, my, my activity bell is like just messages where I've been at mentioned. So I know how to keep up to date, but I will flip and go show me app notifications. And then that way I can see for now, it's just Yammer, but I'm assuming in the future, there'll be a bunch of other things that will come in here, like fill in your payroll or like um, go put in your time time off entries and things like that will start showing up in here too. Yeah, you'll start to see more and more of that stuff. And uh, yeah, Yammer's been one of our early adopters and we've gotten a lot of great feedback from them. And, and they've seen a, uh, one of the things to comment on is activity feed can really drive re-engagement with your app. If you just have an app and you know, someone uses it and then they don't use it again and their their buddies are using it, but they're not using it. And the kind of classic model was, well, if you're not using it, you know, you don't see it even if other people are using it. With activity feed, you do drive re-engagement because your buddies are using it. They're assigning items to you. They're assigning issues. They're at mentioning you. Mm-hmm. You start to see that traffic now with activity feed. And we're, we're seeing that in some of the Yammer numbers as well, that, that Yammer is seeing an uptake in people uh, using Yammer because of the activity feed integration. I did knee jerk away from this originally because I'm like, oh my God, there's enough noise already in different systems and so forth. But I think that the philosophy of like getting this out of my inbox in email is a positive. And, you know, ultimately you can filter it out in Teams. You can't do that if they just come flaring in for an inbox. So I do like the idea that this is like a structured data that's coming in that you can choose and pick which ones you get and which ones you don't. Um, And sure, you can go put a thousand mail rules in Outlook to dump those into folders you never look at. But um, I, I do kind of like this idea of marking them as red and customizing that uh, notification side. And in my experience, many users don't know that they can customize that activity feed. So if you're listening and you work at a company, talk to your team's users about how can I go into settings mm-hmm. and customize, as Jeremy mentioned, how he filters that list. So that's, that can be very helpful. How does this, is this app only? Is it delegated? What's the the flows that you would, I mean, I'm assuming this is like a background daemon app that's making these kind of calls. We, we support both application permissions and delegated permissions um, for, I'm trying to think what a Yammer scenario that you just mentioned would probably do. That would probably be an application permission scenario, but I'm not really, yeah. I'd actually have to go back and review what they're doing there. But you know, both flows are useful. Application permissions are great when there's no one around and you want it to come from the system. Like uh, some of the systems where you have an activity feed notification when some external user from your tenant visited your public website and you know submitted a comment or something, uh, submitted a sales request maybe. Posting that as an activity feed because that external user, they're not authenticated in your system. They can't do a user delegated call on your system. So an application permissions is, is a great scenario for that sort of thing. Um, issue tracking is probably the opposite. That user who assigned you an issue uh, probably does is authenticated in your database and in your tenant. And so having the activity notification sent delegated is, is probably the right way to go and would then show up as something that came from Bob or whoever did that action. Right, rather than Foo exactly. app. Exactly. Rather than coming from Issue Tracker yeah. app, it comes from Bob because Bob is the one who actually assigned you something. Yeah, yeah. That's neat. Now, we, we mentioned app quite a bit. Do I have to create a Teams app and put something in the manifest for this or is it straight call my, the graph endpoint and it does things or both? Yeah, so this is another feature that requires uh, putting something in the Teams app manifest. It requires 
most of the same stuff as RSC. First, you have to put an app ID in there inside the, there's the master property that called web application info that has a couple sub properties. ID being the app ID uh, has the resources, useless resources thing we talked about earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a second bit of information you need to put in the manifest, which is what are the notifications you're going to send? Basically, here are the strings that this app can send with little templated parameters. There's kind of a use curly braces to go insert insert task item here, insert task name here, that sort of thing. So, th so this is not something I could go into Postman or Graph Explorer and just call from there because it needs to have the context of the app Correct. itself. Correct. You will need to uh, have an app yeah, installed, okay. a Teams app installed, and have a little bit of app manifest stuff in there. And the reason we do that, right. the reason we have you specify the notifications in the Teams app manifest is so that we have a, a user settings experience. Users can go in and then individually right. say, well, I like that notification, but not that one. I will turn on this one, turn off that one. And so we need to know up front, mm -hmm. what are all the notifications this thing can send? Yeah, it's very similar to creating a custom role for an application in Azure AD, right? I need to tell you what kind of things I'm expecting so that it can work. And conversely, we tell you these are the activities I want to send and users can then pick and choose what they want to see. I like that. That's pretty slick. What does your uh, throttling, I can see my partner is asking me about that straight away. How are you preventing people from spamming that feed? Is there a, any kind of... Uh, unusual limitations or limits you've put on those things? Well, there, there's definitely limits. And honestly, I'd have to go look up what they are. But yeah. um, generally speaking, if, if you're sending it at a human readable rate to a reasonable number of people, you shouldn't have a problem. Mm -hmm. um, if you, I don't know, if you're doing something insane, like you're either sending a whole lot of notifications to one person at a rate far exceeding what they could actually read, that's a problem. If And the other direction is if you're sending it uh, to just an enormous number of people that can, you know, you can, you can usually find a solution to that, but that can be a little more tricky to engineer because then you have to do the back off. And, and, it, and it has to notify just one person. It can't go to a channel or a team. Uh, correct. Yeah. We, we send notifications to individual users. Right. Okay. That's neat. It, and the, the Teams app, is that a personal app or a team app or both? Any of the above. Okay. That's cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited to see what, internal apps use this for to make my life easier because I do find myself with more and more email of something just happened or you got given this task. So I much prefer that being in the activity bell in Teams for instant kind of notification aspects and make mail a little bit more snail mail approach of not needing to be addressed straight away. So um, that's good that you've added that feature. So thank you. Paul, did you have any other questions? I think we've we've grilled Nick pretty hard in this thirty five minutes. I have a lot. I have a lot more, <laughs> but we, in the interest of time, we'll uh, we'll we'll let him turn his brain off and uh, for the holidays, enjoy and, the uh, vacation. Well, look, thanks very much, Nick, and um, I really, again, really appreciate all the work you've been doing over there in Teams because it just makes my life a lot easier when we go talk to partners about all the capabilities that are available in the API. So, thanks very much, and keep doing what you're doing. Cool. Thanks for having me. We'll um, we'll get you back on um, hopefully sooner than two years. <laughs> Um, to talk a bit more about some of the other work you're going to be doing uh, in 2021. Sounds good. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. 
To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 